0: transform your creative potential today head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys use the number four k-e-y-s that's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy
1: my name is ashley and i love the unmistakable creative podcast because it's real it's raw and it's a conversation that matters
0: If you haven't visited the art store yet, be sure to check it out. Unmistakable Creative t-shirts are now available for sale, and you can see them at unmistakableart.com. They're available for both men and women, and they were designed by our special projects artist, Mars Dorian, so they look really cool. Also, I just realized the form for the Unmistakable Creative Launch Street Team for my book wasn't working. It's fixed now, so if you're interested in helping with the book launch, visit unmistakablecreative.com launchteam launch team. Now, let's get into the episode. I wanna to talk to you a little bit about this episode. Even though it's with a presidential candidate, I encourage you to listen to it with an open mind. I'd say it's more about the profound implications of artificial intelligence and the advances we're making in science and technology than it is about politics. I think you'll find a lot of what Zoltan has to say really interesting. Now, let's get to the show. Zoltan, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
3: Hey, thanks so much for having me here. I very much appreciate it.
0: Yeah, it is my pleasure. So I came across your story uh, on an article on Business Insider. Uh, that said you were running for president under the transhumanist party. And I was immediately intrigued by what you're up to, especially because you're actually the first politician that we've uh, had the opportunity to interview. But what I was really interested in is telling, uh, you know, a much more different side of your story. So on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your background and how in the world that has led to you deciding to run for president?
3: Sure. Well, um, you know, I've always been interested in science and technology since I was a, you know, a student at college. And um, uh, afterwards, I decided to take a really extensive sail trip, mostly alone. Um, you know, sailing across the seas and all and all that. But one of the things that happened on my seven-year sail trip was that I began working for the National Geographic Channel as a journalist. And I, one of my assignments was to go to uh, Vietnam and film. Um, what they call bomb diggers, people that are digging up unexploded bombs that Americans dropped on um, during the Vietnam War. And they sell the metal, these bomb diggers. So a lot of people, instead of farming rice, they'll go and dig bombs. The problem is it's incredibly dangerous. In the demilitarized zone in Vietnam, there's a ton of landmines. And um, I was covering this story, and I had a very close call with almost stepping on a landmine. My guide pushed me out of the way, and it was sort of like a philosophical bomb went off in my head. And after that, I realized that I've been doing a lot of dangerous things as a journalist and as an adventurer, but I was really interested in science and technology mainly to improve the human body and specifically to overcome human death. And you know, if, if your audience doesn't know, transhumanism is the field of using science and uh, technology to improve the human body, to improve the human being, and its main goal is to overcome death. So after this landmine incident in Vietnam, I uh, decided to dedicate my life to transhumanism, which has, in a really weird long way, led me to many different things as a futurist, including writing my novel, The Transhumanist Wager, which went on to do pretty well, and then also um, creating the Transhumanist Party and declaring myself a 2016 U.S. Uh, presidential candidate. Hmm.
0: You know, let me ask you this: that, that's not a small goal. Like I, I was thinking about this as I was thinking about the fact that we were going to have a conversation and it took me back to a memory uh, of a friend that I went to junior high school with. And, you know, he had another friend who was a Boy Scout, who was one of the smartest kids in school. I was like, so what does he want to do when he grows up? It's like, he wants to be the president of the United States. And I went and looked him up on LinkedIn a few years ago just to see. I was like, oh, well, he looked like he was on the path. He went to Harvard for law school. I'm like, okay, but he still isn't a presidential candidate. What I'm curious about is when you look back over your life, especially early childhood, you know, early influences, early mentors, are there moments of significance or inflection points that you think would lead up to you ultimately deciding to run for president?
3: Um, Yeah, I mean, I think everyone that I would say, I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but I would say that probably 70 or 80 percent of the candidates had wanted to do this for many, many years, probably decades, and probably, in fact, since their childhood or something like that. I was always told that you know anyone can run for president, and uh, you know I've sort of believed it. Um, and to a certain extent, uh, you know it's 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 true. Anyone can run, you know, as a presidential candidate. Of course, third party uh, candidates will virtually have no chance of winning, but it doesn't mean that they can't influence the you know the. The entire camp, you know, politics of the nation and stuff like that, because we're having a lot of um, interesting traction with how our news and the transhumanist party and stuff like that is getting out there. But I felt like, you know, since uh, at least I've been in my teens, I thought about it. And uh, as I was writing my novel, uh, The Transhumanist Wager, I also thought about it because it's essentially uh, a book about a philosopher politician who aims to change the world. And uh, you know, then I began really thinking about it two, three years ago. And I, you know, I think I'm married. I have two young kids, so the very first person I had to ask was my wife. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, because honestly, without your spouse supporting you, this is this is a no go. You really need it's a really much, a very much a family uh, endeavor between the interviews and uh, and just everyone supporting this kind of uh, wild idea that hey, I could uh, you know lead the nation uh, down the path for four years.
0: Mm-hmm. L- let me ask you this. That level of belief uh, that comes with trying to accomplish such an audacious goal, do you think that, that that's something that was inherently built into you because of the way that you were brought up or the way that you were raised or you know, your background and circumstances? Or do you think that's something that can be learned and cultivated? If so, how?
3: Well, I, I think it's both. And in my case, it probably is both. But I can easily understand in other people's cases, it might have been one or the other. You know, if you're born into the Kennedy family, you obviously have a much higher uh, chance of becoming a politician just because that is there. Whereas I came from a very kind of straightforward middle class family. My parents were immigrants. They – Actually, escaped communist Hungary in 1968. Came over illegally. Well, they left Hungary illegally uh, to Austria, and then came over to America and became citizens and started their their uh, lives. And and you know, had uh, me here in America. I was born in America. Um, but the I think the main issue here is really like my parents were sort of part of a movement uh fighting sort of against communism and so they had this freedom fighter mentality built into them mm-hmm. and they they passed it on to me and i think that's always made me somewhat of a revolutionary and even now even though i'm running you know uh for the presidency I have some very radical ideas, um, for example, I have suggested that we openly rewrite the Constitution uh, to adjust the u s Constitution to the uh, the transhuman stage to an age where you know in ten, twenty, thirty years, we may become more cyborg than we are humans, we may become more machines we're going to potentially upload our consciousness into machines. I'm not sure the u s Constitution can actually handle that type of change in the individual entity that, you know, that human beings are. So um, I have some radical ideas, and they have carried over, I believe, from my family. Um, But at the same time, I'm pretty, hopefully, balanced enough to, uh, you know, be someone who could be a real contender for for the job itself of, you know, being the president.
0: Hmm. Let me ask you this. You know, I I come from an immigrant family, and it's always interesting to talk to people who have grown up in immigrant families, because I think that that influences and shapes the way we live our lives and the way we see the world in so many ways uh, that I don't think people who haven't grown up in immigrant families really can understand or, or appreciate, at least at the at the level that we do. And I'm really curious how you know having parents who are immigrants, you know, and, and the Hungarian culture has influenced the way you live your life and, and the way you see the world.
3: Well, you know, I I, I think it's totally influenced me in very uh, in so many ways. To begin with, you know, my mom is a Catholic, and my father is essentially an atheist, so the, and I went to Catholic school, so there's always been some conflict and as, as you may know, or maybe your readers uh, your listeners don't but um i 'm apparently the very first uh, atheist presidential candidate uh, declared atheist, you know one who writes about atheism quite often, so that definitely changes my platform a little bit too, and I think I got a lot of that from my father. You know this idea that they also left Hungary kind of illegally and you know across the border in the middle of the night that type of thing. um, It gives you this kind of fighting drive, and I think they've carried that through their whole life. My dad started a small business, was uh, you know moderately successful, and uh, but really did things his own way. And I feel like I've been trying to do things my own way and insisting that I do things my own way. I've really never joined the fold, even though I I suppose now I am married, have kids, and a mortgage, and all that other stuff. It's been, uh, you know, 20 years in the making before I actually really did anything that I would consider really normal, um, at least according to many Americans, uh, you know, sailing around the world and, um, you know, doing war zone reporting for National Geographic. These are not very normal things. Mm -hmm. So uh, I I feel like they definitely gave me this sense. My parents definitely gave me this sense of uh, drive to be uh, at least to be somewhat radical.
0: Let me ask you this that drive to be radical and and have this individualism and and sort of story that is very authentic and genuinely yours. How, how do you, how do you find that in your own life? Like how do we as as listeners and the people who are here find that in our own lives and our own work?
3: Well, you know, I think everyone, I, you know, to begin with, it kind of goes back to that question you asked. Is Is this something that is, uh, you know, uh, developed through psychology as you're growing up? Or is it something that's sort of built in? And it's very hard to know, and I think it's probably both mm-hmm. uh, for everyone. But I think for me, a lot of it may have uh, – well, it was definitely a combination. But I always – you know, one of my platforms and part of my personality is just solid reason. I, I'm just – as an atheist, I just simply um, – clamp down on reason all the time two plus two equals four mathematics everything has to be proven the scientific method is my holy grail for the things that are important to me I never deviate from science I never deviate from logic and uh, or at least I try not to I do not like to let emotions be a part of my decision- making process because I think it leads to um, you know dangerous things so when you ask me kind of this question of like you know what makes a person or wh- how do we get there I'd like to deduce it with logic and say well I wanted to do this or i was very interested after the vietnam incident of not dying and you know and so i want to dedicate my life to transhumanism you know dedicate my life to science and technology and that's why i went down that path now i of course have just logically deduced that for you but perhaps there's a lot more inherent uh, dna and uh, genetic influence that i'm not giving credit for but i think everyone can deduce use logic to find out exactly what they want to do, what they're best at, and what really the most meaning in their life that they can find. And I, I encourage everyone to to philosophically reason with themselves and, and find that path rather than just saying, oh, I feel this way. Because I think um, in the end of the day, understanding something in a logical way is the thing that makes it stick.
0: Hmm. Okay, so that, that actually brings up a, a question for me. You mentioned that you don't let emotions get involved in your decision-making process. And, you know, it's gonna be really interesting to hear what you have to say about this. I mean, emotions to me are are largely what makes us human. But I, I agree with the fact that when we make decisions from an extreme emotional place, we tend to make irrational decisions. And I'm really interested in learning how we manage our own psychology and how we cultivate this capacity not to make decisions from an emotional place.
3: Well, yeah, and you know when I say I don't make decisions from an emotional level, what I'm really saying is I'm trying not to make uh, you know decisions from an emotional level um because of course, we are emotional beings, and without our with all our emotions stripped away, I'm not sure what we would be a lot of uh, Neurologists and a lot of, you know, uh, neuroscientists believe that without emotions, our brains might not even operate this, you know, in in the same type of reality we have, which is probably right. Hmm. Um, So it's very difficult to separate the two. I think what I'm trying to say is one has to have an emotional impulse when making a decision. But at the end of the day, the prism that it has to go through is reason and logic. And it's great to be creative because I write articles all the time. I write novels. You know, I'm, I, I play g- piano and guitar. And creativity comes from a very emotional place, and that's wonderful. But in the end of the day, we need to be very careful that our big decisions in life go through a kind of a prism of reason where we can say, okay, even though this feels good, is this really going to be good for the long-term effect? And not just, you know, one year or one month, but 10 years, 20 years, and for my family and for the world, for the environment. There are all these different things. So I I try to be very emotional, to be honest with you. I I enjoy it, embrace it. But at the same time, I want to make sure that at every step where my emotion is starting to really dictate policy... That's when I step back and say, okay, now, you know, filter it through reason and make sure it's good. And if it doesn't, then I have a conflict between my emotion and my reason, which happens a lot, which happens with all people. Mm-hmm. But um, hopefully my reason does work because I feel like irrational decision-making is what leads to, um, you know, some of the tragedies of life, families breaking up or, you know, just friendships ending or making bad career decisions. So we have to be very careful not to let our emotions dictate the um, the overall goals and which is one of the reasons why I really stomped down on, on reason and logic as a method, as the kind of final tool and the final arbiter of all my decisions. Hmm.
0: You know, one of the other things you brought up was atheism. It's funny. The reason this is, is hot on my mind is because we had, I think, three guests in a row who were all Christians. And somebody asked me a few days ago, Shreeni, is that coincidental? Or are you exploring some sort of new religious or spiritual path? I said, no, no, that was entirely coincidental. Um, I'm, this is something that, that I'm deeply curious about. Uh, you know I mean you having spent all this time sailing around the world, but you 're an atheist I mean does spirituality and that kind of thing play a role in your life and if so how
3: so you know this is this is very interesting in in my novel the transhumanist wager there 's a character, one of the central ones, um, and her name 's Zoe Bach, and she is sort of a spiritual transhumanist or a, someone who believes in using technology for gaining greater access to spirituality and while i Mm, I, I like that perspective. And uh, in fact, the main character marries that that person. Um, I'm still a little bit skeptical of spirituality at all. That said, I have been recently um, for one of my national columns, uh, which is with Vice Motherboard, have been writing a lot on artificial intelligence and on incredibly bizarre concepts. I, I'm the one who uh, came up with this theosidism, which essentially is, um, you probably haven't heard it, but it's very new, this idea that God may have once existed, but he probably, he or she, or it, uh, killed itself. Um, And as a result, by doing so, by killing itself, it created a universe where it would have instilled free will. One of the problems with having um, an all-knowing God, for example, in, uh, in a universe is that it knows everything. That means everything is to some extent already determined, and nobody wants to live in a universe that is totally determined. So if there was a God, the right thing would be to kill itself. Um, and I'm a pretty big believer that we're not the only species in the universe. Uh, the universe has been around 14 billion years, and... Um, To think that human beings are the only intelligent life form in the universe when there are two billion other planets out there that are probably habitable um, is absurd. It's completely irrational. So we're almost certainly not the most uh, intelligent species on the planet, which means there's other – species that have probably discovered artificial intelligence probably super intelligences uh, probably this way out there we might even be in a hologram uh, of a universe in fact uh, i did a lot of my senior thesis at columbia university on this holographic uh, universe which is uh, we are just projections of some other type of entity or some type of uh, manifestation of some sort but the point of the story is that this idea i came up with theosidism um, where there may have been a superintelligence like god but it eliminated itself in order to insist that there can never ever be a, a universe where we don't have perfect free will. By one of the main concepts of the is that by this god killing itself, it would have established that no superintelligence could ever change the rules of the universe, meaning that no superintelligence could ever actually become an omnipotent being. And. Uh, This works in really well for a lot of uh, different religious aspects. But the more important part of it, and I know I'm getting a little spacey here, but the more important part of this is that it kind of works into spirituality. How far, uh, when we talk about spirituality, do we talk about other intelligences that have existed for millions of years somewhere else? Or are we just talking about what's in our own head? Or are we talking about a god we created 2,000 years ago in the desert that was crucified? I mean, these are things. When I say I'm an atheist, I mean... I stand for a, a program or a, a, a culture that has no um, definitive formal belief in an omnipotent God because I just don't like it. And also, you know, fundamental, fundamentally, religion has caused many problems through the last few centuries. So I think the human race would be better off to just either be spiritual or to believe in something like theosidism or just to just be sort of like I am, which is, hey, I'm an atheist, but I'm not really sure if I know anything. But I'm going to try to use, uh, you know, use logic and reason to make the world a better place and be good to people. Hmm.
0: So let me ask you this: um, you know, we've talked a little bit about atheism, and you know, I was thinking about you know our dollar bills, right? On the dollar bill, it says "In God We Trust," and I'm curious, you know, when you're talking about this from a political perspective, how you resolve that tension between an entire country that is largely driven by some level of faith in God, and you know, nearly every presidential candidate has had you know some level of faith. I'm just interested in how that plays out in the messaging and, and how that plays out in the way you craft the story that you're trying to tell the world.
3: Oh, and it so does. And, you know, just your listeners know, of course, it's not just the dollar bill. It's mm-hmm. to get the office, you have to swear on the Bible. Yeah. You know, Obama swore. I mean, all these people. and um it's uh, when someone sneezes, we say God bless you. You know, it's uh, it's the, the saying, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance. There, there's all these different things at Christmas time, the most important holiday. I have uh, suggested that when we give humans give birth to artificial intelligence, the new most important holiday might be actually a day dedicated to artificial intelligence, because likely artificial intelligence will change the world one way or the other uh, so dramatically. But the point here is that. W- I tried to, in my politics, tell people that we can be good without God. You know that we can we can thrive without God. God worked really well. I think I think as we were developing as a species, it was important to have some type of uh, rules set in place and worried about an afterlife and this and that. But you know the main thing with transhumanists is we don't need an afterlife anymore because we have the science and technology to stop aging or to create a kind of indefinite lifespan for ourselves, either through robotics or bionics or mind uploading. And most experts think within 10 to 20 years, we're going to come very close to stopping aging, which means most humans, at least humans born today, I have no doubt that any human born today will live indefinitely, so long as there's no, no um, you know, apocalyptic, you uh, uh, an asteroid hitting the planet or some type of environmental collapse. Um, in fact, I'm 42 and I'm pretty sure I have an incredibly solid chance of living indefinitely just based on how fast science and technology is moving. I mean, they're already reversing aging in mice um, mm-hmm. in studies. So we have a good chance of doing it. But this changes the picture of why we need religion and why we need religion, especially in politics. At the same time, it's incredibly sad that there are virtually no atheist politicians right now in the United States government. You have seven Supreme Court leaders, uh, you have the president, and you have uh, 535 Congress members. Not one of them is a declared atheist. Think of that. We have an entire nation. You have, you know, um, over 600 people that run the country that all apparently believe in a formal religion. That is something that is wrong. It's not diversity. That's not what America is based on. So I try to tell people this as I run as an atheist politician. I try to say we can do this without having to use the handicap of God. We can do the same good things to people, the same humanitarian things, without actually having to belong to some kind of formal religion. And I think that's very important because it's a step of – Evolutionary kind of uh, growing up, or just kind of maturity, to say, "Hey, we can be a we can be a, a very good humanitarian race without um, without the need to worry about you know burning forever in hell or you know praying to something that has all power over us. We don't need those things anymore."
0: Hmm. Okay, so that raises a question for me. You know, one of the things that we spend a lot of time talking about on the show and with a lot of our guests is this whole notion of living a meaningful life because it's one life that we're given and it, we don't know when it's going to end. And when you propose the idea that our lifespan could be indefinite, how does that change in your mind what it means to live a meaningful life and, and what we value?
3: Great question because, you know, and this is one of the most important questions I get asked, um, both in my presidential campaign and as a, as kind of a, a pretty visible transhumanist is that, you know, wow, if we live forever, it just changes the scope of meaning. It changes the entire sense of meaning. One of the most important things I try to tell people is that you're don't imagine the rest of infinity as you're imagining it right now, because that's the, that's the a big mistake. Um, we are not going to be the same things that we are thirty years ago, and i don 't mean we 're going to be a little bit older with more memories I mean we 're going to have augmented intelligence we 're going to have robotic bodies we 're going to be living inside machines we 're going to have robotic hearts that enable us to hold our breath for you know twenty minutes in a row or enable us to run faster than cheetahs bionic limbs or we 're going to you know um, just have exoskeleton suits that allow us to do all sorts of things, endoskeleton suits, suits that are actually attached to our skeleton skeletal structure. So you have to understand the reality of the human being is going to be severely different, but more importantly, the reality of the human mind is going to be different. We have five basic senses right now, but there's going to be a lot more senses by the time um, the transhumanist age uh, is over within 20 years. I think they're going to electively already have bionic eyes, for example. And I just did a story uh, for Gizmodo on bionic eyes. Hmm. Already, if you don't know and your listeners don't know, um, they have the Argus 2, which allows blind people to see. Um, it's it's something that taps into your eyeball, uh, taps, in, taps into your optic nerve. It's a computer chip, and it's just a telephoto lens. So there are some blind people out there that actually have better, tel- better zoom and vision than any human being on the planet. They're already transhuman. But the point of this is every single aspect of our body and our mind is going to be changed. As soon as we start doing putting um, uh, chip implants into our head, and about a half million people around the world right now have uh, brain implants already. Most of them are for epilepsy or Alzheimer's or uh, for, because they're deaf. But the point is that we already have brain implants. We're going to be using it in the near future, within 10 to 20 years, to augment our intelligence. It's going to give us the capacity uh, that we've never imagined. We're going to be a a thousand times smarter than Einstein within 50 years. Um, We're going to tap ourselves into all the internet bases. It's going to be like the Matrix. And When people think of, wow, the world's going to be boring to live infinitely, it's because they're trying to see it from the point of view they have now, which is – you know, we're a biological animal that's destined to last, you know, live 70 or 80 years. It's not going to be like that. When we're tapped into artificial intelligence and our IQ or our capacity is a million times more what it is, we're going to find different value systems. And that's the key I try to tell people. The transhumanist age will create different value systems because of technology. We'll have a different way of perceiving what is meaning, how long we want to live, um, You know, maybe a million-year lifespan will seem very short to a transhuman being once he's been plugged in and, you know, his mind can travel the internet and be a part of that. So I I always encourage people to not look at it from the human perspective, but try to imagine the transhumanist perspective. Then they'll find a lot more meaning, a lot more uh, discovery out there in a universe that we can literally traverse, and we're going to have so many more senses to play with, so many more versions of reality, um, so many more things to do that I don't think we're ever going to get bored.
0: Hmm. Okay, so th- this opens up a whole landmine of, of questions for me. Uh, really fascinating stuff. One of the things that that's interesting, as I'm hearing you say that, the thing I think about is how much time we spend talking about disconnecting and unplugging from technology to maintain our, our sort of sanity. And I'm wondering how that plays into all of this.
3: Well, yeah, and I think everyone, including myself, sometimes uh, is uh, is pretty uh, upset with technology or just feels overwhelmed. Let's be honest: the human mind was not designed to drive in cars at forty-five miles per hour down the road, two hours a day in traffic, or you know, or and drinking coffee and listening to the radio. That's not what our brains were designed for. Our brains were designed to you know walk amongst the trees, you know, walk down and climb trees and eat fruit, whatever. You know, what I mean, what's happened is. Technology has um, evolved far faster than our brains or than our biological necessities have and um, this, this kind of has created a disconnect. So when you live in a concrete environment or you live in a big city uh, or you just you know you're away from nature, you feel that disconnect and then you get overwhelmed because we were never designed to work 40 hour weeks and some of us like myself working a hundred hour weeks um, this is uh, this is not what the human being was designed to do We were lazy creatures that wanted to hunt and gather and um, essentially you know mate and uh, hang out with our kids and you know have a good time uh, this is kind of what our our bodies, our brains were designed for. So we're constantly facing this disconnect. That said, um, obviously, uh, I think most people realize from a rational perspective that kind of going back to that uh, emotion versus a reasoning uh, concept is that, wow, it's great to be able to live uh, so long. It's great to be able to hop on an airplane and travel halfway around the world and see something totally new. I mean, this is what evolution is all about. And I think... um, people look at it from that way, they realize that technology is really, really wonderful. It has given us brand new opportunities to do amazing things. But there's no question that at certain moments in time, uh, technology is very overwhelming. And uh, I think that's where we run to this idea where we really weren't designed to do some of the things. And that's why I'm hoping technology will help us deal with that later by having either chip implants or some type of, uh, you know, tech or science that makes us feel better about technology in itself.
0: Hmm. You know, it, one of the things really, is really, inter- really interesting, really interesting, interesting, seven years uh, as a as a big part of this journey, and it's such an odd contrast to go from somebody who has spent that much time in nature to being a transhumanist. And I'm wondering, you know, what in the world, you know, like, how you would arrive at such a conclusion after spending that much time, pretty much being off the grid, right?
3: Yes, yes. So. I was off the grid for many years of my life. And i got to be honest, you know, until recently. Uh, and, and when I say off the grid, it's not like off the grid. When you're a journalist, you're not really off the grid that much. And most of, most of for example, my sail trip, most of my travels, I have been working as a journalist. Um, and so you're constantly thinking of ideas and thinking of where society and culture is going and discovering new stories and reporting back. So as far off the grid as I was, it was never um, something so much. But, you know, the, there are so many ideas out there that you get when you have some time to yourself i've been one of those lucky human beings for example on my passage from uh, my sailing passage from uh, santa barbara to uh, hawaii where i was 20 days entirely alone in fact i've done a couple 20 day and a little bit longer passages. So you just get 20 days to yourself to think. I usually read books, but um, it's quite strange to be in your own head for 20 days at a time and, and the things you think of to not talk to anyone. So it gives you a lot of time to get to know yourself. And I think that's very important. I wish people in modern society would actually have more of an incentive to travel and to travel alone and to travel without having to worry about, for example, money or where they're staying. This is one of the great things about a boat: is you're sort of just stuck, Mm and you just get to do whatever you want to do. In my case, I played guitar, I cooked, I read books, and I just thought—I thought a lot—and it gave me a lot of development. And I I think that's one of the one of the reasons I have sort of decided to really pursue transhumanism is I kind of worked out logically that wow, I I really love life. I mean, because that's what transhumanism really is about: it's about people that love life that want to preserve life through science and technology, that want to improve life through science and technology. If you didn't love life, um, for example, going back to religion, um, you know, I, I would say that most religious people are deathists. Deathists is someone who embraces the idea of dying. And, of course, a deathist embraces the idea of dying if they're going to have a much better afterlife than this earthly existence, which is supposed to be not very good, according to most formal religion, like Christianity and Islam. So the idea is these deathists... I guess, want to die. But transhumans don't want to die. They want something very different. They want to live as long as possible, and they want to live as, as, as magnificently as possible using science and technology. And that's one of the things that I think developed over my years of traveling was I really thought about that and realized that at a very core fundamental level in my psyche.
0: Hmm. Let me ask you this. What do you think this idea of transhumanism is going to do uh, for both creativity and our capacity as human beings to accomplish and achieve things? And and how do we maintain the balance of the things that you know we can do? You know, Jeff Colvin just recently wrote a book called "Humans Are Underrated." We're going to have him as a guest on the show. And even at, in the beginning of Dan Pink's book, he says, you know, if a machine can do it for you, you become replaceable. And I'm really interested in, in how you think the blend of these two things is going to impact our creativity the things that we can uniquely bring to it and our capacity as human beings
3: well to begin with you know my own campaign in the transhumanist party support a universal basic income and we support a universal basic income because we're absolutely certain that robots and software are going to take all jobs my wife is an ob you know and uh her job in 20 years, even as a surgeon with 20 years of training, will uh, be replaced. Uh There's no question that a robot will be able to deliver babies um, better than a human being in 20 years. Or maybe it's not 20, maybe it's 30, but there's no question at some point in time that a robot will be able to do the most complicated things that humans can do better than humans. So we're on a timeline that jobs are going to die for human beings. So we need to ask ourselves, where does that leave us? So that's one of the reasons we support a universal basic income, because we want people to feel like they, no matter how many jobs get taken, they at least have the means to survive. But the real question is, what do you do with your life? You know, one of my big campaign um, platforms is that I believe not only um, in college education, but I believe we should make college mandatory. And I believe also we should make preschool mandatory, because I feel that a more educated public is going to have more ideas about what they want with their life. It's kind of going back to the sail trip. You know, the more time you have to think and read and learn, the more you discover about yourself and the more you discover what you want to do with your existence. And I think this is very important because if you just go right into working, whatever job it is, and you don't have much time because, you know, jobs are kind of tough and then get married and have kids or whatever it is that you do, you don't have much time to smell the roses. It's very important to smell the roses. And I think education. For many people is smelling the roses, but the reason I bring up education is because we think as in as people are living far longer, their idea of what they want to do with their lives both professionally and creatively and um, creatively change and one thing that's really important for me is that we don't let robots become more creative than us at that stage we have to stop robots um, and either merge with robots or not let them become so creative. Uh, I have said this before, I do not believe in letting an artificial intelligence come into being on the planet. Uh I do not want a smarter entity than me on planet earth. That makes absolutely no sense um, to have something like that because if it turns on me and becomes mean or like the Terminator, then (laughs) we've lost a huge thing. But what I completely uh, support and what I endorse is we should work very hard so that when we get to the level of having an artificial intelligence We can merge with it. We can merge with the robots. We can become the robots. We can become the artificial intelligence ourselves. And then we could have that kind of capacity to become creative and use the creativity that technology will allow us. You know, instead of a a trillion neurons, we're going to now have, you know, a a Google amount of neurons, you know, something insane. So that's what I, I am endorsing for how to keep human beings creative is let's develop the technology, but let's not let it run wild. Let's develop the technology so that we can use it and we can become that technology. And at that point in time, that's where I think all uh, uh, human beings, uh, if we still call them that, they'll probably be transhumanist beings at that point, of course, um, will have this ability to tap into using this creativity that comes from being a part of AI or being a part of some type of machine. And then we'll all be able to kind of go down that path together and hopefully keep our creativity and, in fact, have it so much stronger than it's ever, ever been
0: so you know I've always said the gap between creativity and technology is getting narrower and narrower by the day and I think it's going to be only a matter of time before it's non-existent. I think there will be a day when we can make feature length films from our iPhones.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. In fact, I so uh, I've had some interest in my book regarding movie a uh, movie mm-hmm. and um and I one of the things I've been waiting for is knowing that if I don't get the kind of deal that I want, um, in three or four or five years, the technology is going to be out there to do a movie in the book, but in such a good way that I won't need this enormous budget, and then I can do it myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something that's wonderful from an artistic point of view because it's like you can then take your work and translate into all mediums. And the same thing goes with creating video games. Um, again, we've had interest in video games for for my book and stuff like that, and. You're going to have capacity to do all these things on your own and to do them really well. And that's, a, that's a fa- that brings up so many things. And that's, again, why I think even if robots take our jobs, um, we're going to, as a, as a species, have a lot of free time and a lot of amazing technology to have a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lo- I think the world coming in 10, 20, 30 years is going to be far better than the world we have now. Um, and, th- and that's a great thing, I think. So
0: let me ask you this. I mean, the idea of a universal basic income uh, that seems incredibly utopian and almost impossible to achieve. And I, you know, it's funny cause I've seen documentaries like the zeitgeist and I'm like, wow, what a, what a crazy idea that we could live in a world like that. I mean, how do we go from a world in which there are people starving, not getting clean water, you know, not having their basic human needs met to a level where everybody has a universal basic income. I mean, that seems that's such a gargantuan leap from where we're at. I mean, how in the world do we make that kind of a leap?
3: No, and I couldn't agree with you more. Um, it is a gargantuan leap, and uh, that's why a lot of my ideas, especially with my presidential candidacy, are very radical. Because it, it's not that they're not good ideas. They're, I think everyone agrees that they're pretty good ideas. I just think everyone says, "Wow." I, I was interviewed recently with by Quartz, um, which the Atlantic owns, and uh, and. You know the 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 journalist was saying (laughs) fascinating, but uh, wow, impossible to accomplish. And I, I unfortunately, said, yeah, it probably is impossible to accomplish at least in the next ten years. We're going to have to have some type of revolution or some type of like demonstrations in the streets with so many people losing their jobs for example the trucking industry with i think 3.5 million truckers in america mm-hmm. you know they're already talking within five years they're going to have automated trucks and this, this is virtually guaranteed so you're going to lose a huge portion of uh, the workers. Uh, same thing. You can see McDonald's already uh, eliminating people and putting in robot uh, counters. And the same thing happening uh, at various uh, uh, um, stores like Lowe's having robots. And I mean, everywhere you look, every industry, waitresses and waiters in China being replaced, everywhere you look, uh, robots are, are sort of taken over. There's no question that this is going to happen. So the real question is, wh- where does that leave us? And when enough people realize that They're going to be out of a job, and the government says we can't support everyone on welfare or whatever it is. Then they're going to change the system, and that's when a universal basic income is going to stick. I've written an article supporting universal basic income, but I didn't write the article because I wanted to support a universal basic income. I actually don't. I think I like capitalism. I like people earning their own keep, but it's not for me to say what I want. It's for me to say what I think is going to work for the species, for the overall good of the species, and what will keep. Uh, us from fighting each other and having a revolution at some point, and I hate to say this, that the rich are going to have to give up some of their proceeds to make everybody happen, or they're going to see maltov cocktails on the streets. I mean that 's just a, a fact. we can't keep going with the society forward and then have robots taking all these jobs. There must be something, and the universal basic income is the one where I think will cause the least amount of pain. Um, and give everyone a sort of a, a platform where they can at least have a, a roof over their head, the food they want, the, some of the things that they want in their lives, and then they can of course work on top of that you know, um, but at least everyone will have this basic i 'm taken care of, and uh, we can go from there and um, again, like i said i didn 't come up with this i didn 't support this idea because it was the idea I wanted. I support this idea because it 's the most realistic one to avoid a, a kind of a dystopic um, you know a dystopia. Uh, society.
0: Do you think it's going to take mass hysteria in order for us to actually take this idea more seriously? <laughs> oh,
3: unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, well, let's begin by saying it usually does. That, yeah. that's the, when you look historically speaking, the French Revolution, some of these things, it usually just takes um, people getting so upset that something happens. I mean, you can see in the news these days with, uh, you know, with uh, uh, police shooting um, black individuals, it, it's, people are getting very upset. And eventually you have enough of that happen where all of a sudden you have to uh, redesign the system and say, this is unacceptable. Um, And, you know, in fact, I've been trying to do this on a lot of my platform. One of the reasons I'm driving uh, – I haven't talked about this yet, but I'm driving a, a bus across the country. The bus looks like a giant coffin. Um, It's a 40 foot coffin, essentially, um, is because we're trying to tell people that right now the United States government with 100 percent religious politicians does not see the need for people to live longer. It just it doesn't have any policy that is actually advocating for longevity, even though the science exists out there. The budget going towards longevity science is a fraction of the science budget, and the science budget is two percent of the nation's GDP. And the, for example, the war budget is twenty percent of the GDP. I mean, the numbers are so absurd when you think about it um, that only two percent of our GDP goes to science and technology as a, as a government. Yeah, it, it's incredibly. Uh, it's, it's it's it makes me very sad. And the point of the story is that we need to change that. We need to tell people we need to have activism. We might have to have demonstrations and we might have to bring out the Molotov cocktails. I hate to say it, but that's how the world operates until we get uh, people to say, wow, what is in the best interest of society at large? And obviously using science and technology is in the best interest of society to make them live better and longer and healthier um, is, is in the best interest then uh, we're not going to be getting anywhere. So we have to take very activist measures in order to get our work done. And I think it will probably take something very activist, you know, take a huge one, a a new generation of people out of jobs that um, will say, finally, yes, let's pass the universal basic income.
0: Okay, so let me ask you this. This raises a a really interesting question for me because, uh, you know, I've said the internet is, is in many ways like a developing country, right? There's all this opportunity, and for some reason, There are certain people on the Internet who end up building these massive audiences and somehow, you know, it's, it's so fragmented. But the question that the idea of a universal basic income brings up for me is how then do you deal with the level of motivation that we have as human beings and what people contribute to society and to humanity? Like what happens when you have that? Like, do you think that will be affected in a negative or a positive way?
3: yeah well, that is one of the things I do worry about because I think what you have right now is you you know you have a, a portion of the population that really, may not be interested in working, may not be interested in doing anything except buying trinkets at Walmart, <laughs> and potentially just even causing trouble in society. I mean, I, let's be honest, you know, there there's a, uh, I think 50% of Americans or something like that have less than $10,000 or, you know, in their pocket, any given, or, you know, available to them. So we have these huge discrepancies in society between the rich and the poor. And I'm not saying anyone's right or anyone's wrong. What I'm just trying to say is there are people out there that don't want to do anything that just want to take. And that's very uh, that's very hard for those that want to work for people that have to pay taxes and you know all these other things That said, I'm hoping that in the new age there'll be certain types of either brain implants or certain types of drugs or certain types of motivating factors that will make everyone want to live the best life that they can live. It's very hard though to get somebody that wants you know that, has not worked for 15 years and just has been getting a paycheck, a welfare paycheck to actually get back in the game. I'm not sure how you get someone that motivated, but maybe there'll be something like a motivator chip or there'll be something like, um, you know, I don't know, but I I think, you know, we should just let people do what they want. If they don't want to be motivated, then there's no reason to force them. They get their universal basic income. The only thing we ask is they don't commit crime and they don't, you know, they don't cause problems. Mm -hmm. Um, but that said, it would be great if we could come up with a device sort of like a, a good a tall cup of Starbucks coffee that actually gets us more on the ball. You know, I mean I I, I hate to say it but uh, we need something that makes people want to be in the game. And I'm not saying I know exactly what the game is about um, but I want whatever per- someone is doing to try to do it their best and uh, and that usually means working really hard. I don't know what the job is. It doesn't matter. But let's get people, everyone, motivated to be the best they can be. And um, I'm hoping technology will give us some hints, or some uh, methods, or some chips, or implants, or drugs, or whatever it is, to get more people involved. Because I would hate to see a society of of just people who who are flakes. That's that's the you know uh, you know the transhumanist party is the is the most open. party in the world. There's no discrimination. There's nothing. Every single, you know, we're very pro LGBT. We're very pro everything. But the one thing we don't like are people that just don't want to do anything because they just want to take from the system. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to contribute. You have to be a player here. You have to do something. Just do it to the best of your ability because in the end of the day, this is a system. We are a species trying to become something uh, better. And that's really the kind of most fundamental thing about the human being. So I am always looking for ways to get people more motivated so that they can find the most potential in themselves.
0: Wow. Okay. So I have one last question. Then I want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, one of the things that you talked about is education, and it's something that comes up here a lot on the show, especially with the people that we've had. And you know, there's a lot of a lot of conversations. You know, I, I'm a byproduct of the education system. I jokingly say that I'm a failed byproduct of the education system because it didn't lead to its intended outcome. Uh, and I'm just curious if you think education in its current form is working.
3: Well, <laughs> I don't. You know, intended outcome is so such a funny way. Yeah. What, and I know exactly what exactly you mean. One of the reasons I actually so you know we we are one of our main platforms and one of the most unusual platforms is that we are trying to f- change the laws of the United States of America and say college and preschool are mandatory just like high school is when the high school laws when people you know around the country and all the states decided to make People go to high school because you know at some point in the last hundred years, American government has gotten together and say, okay, kids should get a, a primary education. Then they said, okay, kids should get a secondary education. Then they said, okay, kids should get a high school education, and they said we should mandate it through law. Um, when they did these laws, people's average lifespans when they said when they made high school mandatory, people's average lifespans were about sixty five. Well, the average lifespan is around eighty seven now, and it's going to be a hundred very very soon, within ten years, and yet. Despite us living you know, 25, 35% longer, uh, the amount of education we are legally supposed to get has not changed. You would think, as we have longer lifespans, you know, if we're living to 150, of course college should be mandatory. I mean, what kind of species are we that um, you know, we insist on a high school but not on college? The idea is we are a species that wants to educate ourselves, to become going back to motivation, to become the best we can be, mm-hmm. which is why I endorse um, mandatory college. But college for me is not about a job. And certainly it's not going to be about a job in the future. What college is about, it's about – I hate to say but it's about drugs. It's about sex. <laughs> it's about rock and roll. It's about reading Nietzsche in the middle of the night under the, you know, uh, in the library. This is what it's about. It's not about learning more algebra. It's not about – I mean, sure, it is about you know, getting better at some of the sciences and math and what that. But what it's really about is that you take four years out of your life and you dedicate it to just being someone who is free – to study, to improve their minds, to improve their, their beings. That's what college is about. So when you talk about intended, uh, you know, cause with yourself, I think it worked perfectly in your case because it's and certainly me and mine. I think it did pretty well too. I studied philosophy with no outlook on what kind of job I would get. I just studied philosophy because I was interested in it. Uh-huh. And I think that's what I would love to do people. And we also support free education. We also would want to, for example, lessen um, the amount of money we spend on prisons and put all that money into education because currently America spends four times the amount on the prison system than it it spends on education, which is a complete travesty. So we would pay for everyone's college and pay for everyone's preschool if they didn't want to go to a private school. And the point of the story is that this is the kind of society we need where everyone on the street can talk about... um, you know, can talk about the the, the latest happenings, uh, you know, or, or what what the French Revolution meant when we tied into where uh, the 2016 elections are going or something like that. This is the kind of, you know, intellect I would like to see from the country where everyone can speak about uh, Heisenberg principle or something like that and, and, and define it philosophically and talk about it and make better decisions. And it's a fact that the more educated um, people are – the better their lives are, the better chance their families have a chance to stay together, the wealthier they become, um, and the happier they are. So education has a direct correlation on virtually every important aspect of our lives. I, I can't support it enough to say that I would really – it's one of the very first things I'd try to do is say, we must make college mandatory in this country. We must make preschool mandatory. We must get – we must endorse a culture where everyone can go to school um, and – for free and as long as they want, and they have to at least get these upper education. Those last four years in undergraduate uh, education are critical, too, because it's, it's when you start really understanding the great literature pieces that we may not have understood in high school, your mind finally starts getting to a point when it's mature enough to understand you know, Foucault or some of the other kind of great uh, uh, authors out there that you need to understand.
0: Hmm. All right. Let me ask you this, and then I want to talk a little bit about the entire process of running for president—kind of a day in the life in this entire path of yours. Have there any, been any sort of like rock bottom? I can't see any hope for the future. Moments.
3: Ah, <sighs> you know, I, unfortunately, what's one of the things that really bothers me is my own community—the transhumanist community—is not necessarily always on board with my ideas. Uh, I have. Uh, I, I, I'm the. I'm the. Figure in transhumanism, who has probably the most media coverage because I, I have national columns and I'm able to publish a lot of articles. For example, I published an article this morning on Gizmodo, you know, one of the largest technology sites, on environmentalism and transhumanism. And so, the, the, the transhumanist movement was very small um, until I think a, a couple of years ago when it really started catching on in major media. And of course, I've helped contribute to that with uh, my national columns and. Um, It bums me out all the time that there's a lot of resistance from the older transhumanists in the community who have been around 20 or 30 years. They were a very small movement for 30 years. Now all of a sudden transhumanism has become a kind of a worldwide movement with millions of people and it's growing, it's exploding in size right now. And it bums me out that uh, I think a lot of, uh, some of the community doesn't, You know, they they wanted this movement to to thrive but all of a sudden when it does, they're not sure that they like it because they can't control it anymore. And the fact is that, uh, that's the whole point. Um, transhumanism is sort of like envir- the environmental movement. Uh, Twenty years ago, when you look at who started the environmental movement, who got the world to sign up to saying we all should recycle, we all should believe in green technology, we all should take care of the planet? That, that was not just something that just happened. Um, that was a, a group of people. Uh, John Muir and some of these other people that actually started it, Greenpeace. When you look at the history of it, there's a very definitive history of how that worldwide movement took over and made, you know, half a billion, uh, I'm sorry, a couple billion people on the planet environmentalists. I think virtually everyone in the developed world would say, oh, we, to some extent, we we support now the planet. Um, it's, it's not a concept that was here 20 years ago. We're trying to do the same thing with transhumanism, and I'm sort of bummed out that there's uh, people in the community that don't necessarily when it's starting to explode in size are saying um we're not really sure if this is the proper direction for the movement maybe it shouldn't get so big or maybe it shouldn't be in politics or maybe one person shouldn't have so much visibility in the media but you know these are how things- these are how movements start and so uh i hit I, re- I fight that resistance every day in fact just the other day i announced that uh you know my wikipedia page has been vandalized again and again <laughs> you know and um my uh i get death threats on uh, twitter i got one 3 or 4 days ago you know and these things bum me out they bum me out because they happen so frequently but at the same time it's not going to stop me from doing what i do in fact uh defines of this nature just makes me more committed
0: mm. so let's shift gears a little bit and uh you know i want to wrap up with some just questions that i have out of morbid personal curiosity i mean what is that day in the life of a presidential candidate? Like, I mean, you know, I, I don't imagine you wake up and, you know, drink coffee the way I do and write a thousand words and say, you know what, I'm going to check into Twitter and Facebook and waste time. Like what, what are your days like now? I mean, and how does this affect, you know, the life that you have? And you mentioned family earlier and the kind of commitments that it takes. I'm just really personally curious. Like what is your, how does your life change when you're this visible in the public eye?
3: Yeah, well, I can tell you that it has changed dramatically. And, um, I think one of the biggest difficulties has been having camera crews in my uh, in my house especially with my family one of the unique things about my presidential campaign is that I'm, I think, the youngest visible candidate, uh-huh. um, and so I have an infant, <laughs> and I'm, I'm perhaps the first presidential candidate to have an infant in in many decades. I'm not sure about that, but certainly uh, everyone's like, "Wow, you you have an infant," and that sort of changes the dynamics. Most presidential candidates, for example, like Obama, had you know five, seven year olds or whatever, but an infant's a very different type of animal because it's, uh, it's an infant. It needs constant you know care and it needs a lot of. Uh, you don't just send it to school and see it when it gets home. You know, I mean, it's it's there all the time. So I, uh, I deal with a lot of things like that. I actually stay home a lot with my uh, kids, uh, with my infant and, uh, you know, nannies come and go and there's daycare centers, but uh, I'm here a lot. So I deal with that on a personal level. I change diapers. I think additionally, what uh, I deal with on a day-to-day level is I, I check my email obsessively because, you know, we uh, – our platform with the Transhumanist Party is very much a media-based campaign. We uh-huh. we're appealing to the younger generation, and so we're in social media all the time. So just like you, I actually am Twitter, or Facebook a lot, um, putting forth ideas, spreading articles. You know, at this point, we're doing you know a couple original articles a day on us. So we spread them out. We uh, you know do that, and then I also write a ton. Um, I make it a very point to write uh, a couple articles a week. I try at least to get out two a week if possible, and. Um, Uh, You know my columns for Psychology Today, Huffington Post, Vice, Motherboard, and then I also write uh, for Gizmodo, and done some other stuff for Wired UK, uh, Daily Mail, uh, Slate, and um, so I have a a platform where I can write a lot of different things, and I I do a lot of writing just to get out policy. Um, You know, I I, my article today in Gizmodo was on. because I believe climate change is already here and we're sort of doomed to a certain extent, there's no question in my opinion that uh, the weather's getting warmer and you, know, you can see it happening, um, that we're going to have some significant shifts in the, in, on the planet. And uh, one way to do that instead of to recycle more, because I, I don't think we can stop this shift. You can't get uh, the developed world to stop uh, wanting to be uh, in the developing world to stop wanting to be developed. You can't tell uh, a nation that's hungry to have cars that they shouldn't drive. Um, so the best idea, in my opinion, is to become transhuman, is to actually work towards the technologies that are going to allow us to survive in environments that we're, we might not have um, clean air or clean water. And, uh, you know, the quicker we make it to the robotic age, the, the better we'll be. It's very controversial. I was excited that Gizmodo published this piece um, for me. But it is actually a mandate that's saying that, you know, since we can't stop climate change, we've already blown it. We, we weren't very good stewards of the planet. The next thing, next best thing we can do is make sure we can survive whatever comes our way. And this is good for a nuclear war or a uh, or uh, an asteroid hitting us anyways, that we would be able to be merged with machines to survive these things. So I, I write a lot of these articles. And um, and then, of course, I'm working on my bus tour constantly. That's really the biggest thing I'm doing right now where we're trying to get this bus ready and take a trip across the country. We're going to develop uh, de- deliver a cyborg bill of rights to the U.S. Congress that's uh, supposed to get people more interested in uh, putting policy towards – longevity science uh like i said there's no policy in the united states constitution or government right now that's actually designed to make human beings live longer and um we think that's a, a, tra- a travesty you know we we, we want to change that we want there to be some type of law that states people uh, have a right to live as long as possible um given where science is taking us and we'd like the american government and congress to pass such a thing
0: awesome wow uh, well, Zoltan, this has been really fascinating. Uh, and just, I, I knew it would be a fascinating story to tell on the show. So I, I want to wrap with my, my final question, which is how we close all our interviews, with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
3: Hmm, what a great question. <laughs> I think the thing that makes somebody unmistakable is when they have an original piece of them that you have not, that anyone has not seen before. Um, Something that is so like, wow, it just takes you aback, you know? And I think that's what makes somebody unmistakable is when you see them and you know, wow, that's their platform, that's their policy, that's what they're doing. And that's why it's so strange or weird. And you might hate it, you might love it, but whatever it is, it's something that sort of is almost shocking in its originality. Awesome.
0: Well, like I said, uh, this has been mind-blowingly cool and fascinating. And uh, I I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights and uh, everything you're up to with our listeners.
3: Hey, I thank you so much for having me uh, on your show. It's been wonderful to speak with you.
0: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative.